recording. All right, welcome to Between the Gutters with Albert Lamb and Drew Tan. All right, Between the Gutters is a comic book podcast where we tell you about the stories within the panel. You like that? Is that? I've, we, I've been working we, on that. Are we trying to catchphrase? <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to come up with the tagline. But yeah, I, I let me. Okay, let me uh, let me work on some catchphrases that we can. Maybe put on some swag or a t-shirt. Oh, yeah, totally, uh, man. Every good podcast. Chunka Dunka. <laughs> <laughs> you know what Albert says. Chunka Dunka. Chunka Dunka, folks. Chunka Dunka. <laughs> Albert, that thing that I always say, <laughs> that move was Chunka Dunka. <laughs> Chunka Dunka or Chunka Dunka? Chunka Dunka. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so... We are between. You're listening to Between the Gutters, and today we are going to continue our series on the top 25 Marvel comics of all time. Now, just to briefly recap, in our so far, uh, we've counted down from 25, and the number 25 uh, greatest Marvel comic was Avengers: New Avengers by Jonathan Hickman. 24 was Howard the Duck. Number 23 was Punisher Max by Garth Ennis. Number 22 was Omega the Unknown by Jonathan Lethem and Pharrell Dalrymple. Number 21 was The Ultimates 1 and 2. Number 20 was Ultimate Spider-Man. And number 19 was New X-Men by Grant Morrison and a slew of artists. So before we uh, get into today's topics, I just want to really briefly go back and revisit uh, Ultimate Spider-Man, which we talked about in our previous episode, especially because of the big news that happened a couple weeks ago when we heard that Brian Michael Bendis signed an exclusive contract with DC Comics. Yeah, it's a pretty big deal, uh, if only because it's fair to say that Brian Michael Bendis has been a pretty huge influence on the Marvel Universe for the past, what, 20 years or so? Probably, yeah, maybe like 17, 17, something like that. Yeah, he. a lot of his stories have driven the, the plots for really every book in the Marvel Universe. I, yeah. I think it's, it's hard to point out any book that hasn't been influenced by plots or writing directives that he's been involved in. So um, it, it, it does feel like... This new news does this sudden shift in um, change for him to move over to, to DC. It, it does warrant us talking about Ultimate Spider-Man a little more at length. Yeah, because I felt that uh, just thinking back to our, uh, our last episode, maybe we uh, kind of undersold the uh, significance and the impact of Ultimate Spider-Man because I mean we I think we talked a little bit about how. How that book affected Spider-Man, the character, uh, the franchise, Marvel Comics. But one of the biggest impacts it had was the impact it had on Brian Michael Bendis' career. I mean, that was the book that really put him on the map. He started working at Dare on on uh, at Marvel with with Ultimate Spider-Man as well as Daredevil. His those were his first two books, and because of those two books, and especially Ultimate Spider-Man, which was a really hot seller when it first launched, 
he really became Marvel's go-to guy. And it was a launching pad for his uh, career from yeah. independent comics into mainstream. Yeah, because he had been he had done a good number of his own creator-owned comics, caliber and, and image. And when he finally got his big break at Marvel, doing Ultimate Spider-Man and, and Daredevil, that really changed things around. Shot his star high up, and he beca he became Marvel's architect. And now. He's going to join DC Comics, and I don't think they've mentioned uh, what he's going to be doing, but should be interesting to see how they utilize him. Mm. Uh, I shouldn't have said utilize. That's a dumb word. I should have just said use. Utilize is pretentious. My bad. Yeah, uh, yeah I don't really have a response to Shanka Dunka! <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I was fine with utilize, but... I'll tell you what, we'll do a separate podcast episode on the pretentiousness of the word utilized. <laughs> I mean, that that's lost on me, but all right, sure. <laughs> if you say it's pretentious, shut it down, folks. <laughs> all right, so today we are going to get on with our list. We are going to start with uh, number 18. But before we uh, get into that, let's uh, briefly recap uh, the criteria that we used to determine how we came to our final rankings. So first of all, is craft, basically is the comic technically sound. Originality is, the other, is another criteria. Just is it creative and does it have something new to say? Third is impact. What sort of lasting influence did it have in comics or pop culture in general? And fourth, does it withstand the test of time? Is it something that you can see rereading over and over in the future? So pretty simple. Uh, and at number 18, what do we have? We have Hawkeye by Matt Fraction and, for the most part, David Aja. There weren't any guest artists, were there? Well, there were a good number of different artists. Uh, David Aja and Annie Wu were the yeah. two main contributors, but we also had a couple issues by the likes of Francesco Francavilla, Javier Pulido, Steve Lieber, and Chris Eliopoulos. You know, all of those are really great artists. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. Primarily, though, uh, Hawkeye is known as Matt Fraction's joint. Yeah. Obviously, David Aja had, out of all the artists, he probably had the biggest influence, and he's the one that's most closely associated with this run from 2012. Oh, I, I thought you were going to put an end note uh, on the year, but okay. Uh, <laughs> so, in terms of the strong points of the book, I feel like the first thing that I have to mention is the reason, uh, if, if we're looking at our criteria for how we judge a, how we define which comics make it to the top 25, the, the one thing that stands out for, about Hawkeye by Matt Fraction, Head Above Shoulders, has got to be the design of the book. Mm -hmm. um, I would say that Matt Fraction is a great storyteller, but it's this production is not just... It doesn't just highlight his talent as a story writer, but him combined with David Aja's artwork, it's just the two of them blasting at full guns, working in perfect unison together to, to produce this just excellent looking comic it when i look at it it feels almost as if 
a graphic designer had a chance to do a comic book. Yeah. And so, like, just every page, all the covers, they're just gorgeous to look at. And you can just, even if you don't really go over the words, it's a book that you can definitely pick up and just marvel over each panel, each page, and just appreciate just for its design aesthetic. Yeah, absolutely. And I would say Hawkeye definitely feels like a creator-owned series that just happens to be based on a Marvel superhero published by Marvel Comics. But when you look at, as you said, uh, it's a very design-oriented work. It There really wasn't anything else like it on the shelves at the time. I don't even can't even think of anything that's like it right now. Yeah. Especially yeah. coming from Marvel. I mean, there are just certain pages in it that are just super intricate. Just little things like, you know... Um, like the way that Aja plays with shapes and forms, yeah. the way that he uses negative space on his in his designs. You can just look at his covers. They were able to tell stories that barely had any uh, dialogue. It was just a really impressive uh, piece of work. But the premise of, of the overall series, it ran uh, about 22 issues. I think there was an annual as well. It's collected in four trade paperbacks or one giant omnibus, which is probably the best way to, to own it. The premise of this book is very simple. It's about what does Hawkeye do in his downtime? And one of the things that is also interesting is Hawkeye... There's two Hawkeyes in the Marvel Universe. A lot of people who aren't as familiar with comics may not recognize that, but there's Clint Barton, who's the guy that we see in all the movies... And there's also uh, Kate Bishop, the other Hawkeye, who was created, I don't know, maybe 10, 12 years ago now, uh, back when Young Avengers yeah. was launched. Her big, um, I guess her big uh, introduction to the Marvel Universe was from uh, Young Avengers by Alan Heinberg. Yeah, and Jim Chung. Yeah, and Jim Chung. So it was kind of a big deal at the time because Alan Heinberg was most well-known as the guy who wrote for the OC. Yeah. So it was this, um, I don't know if it was an intentional campaign, but they, they were putting a lot of effort into just letting people know that a guy from television was, you know, working on a comic. Yeah. And at the time, it was sort of a big deal. It was deal. a big deal, yeah. yeah. And Kate Bishop is a character who's lasted. Uh, she's been used in, in a bunch of different stories over the past 10 years or so. She's basically... This young lady, uh, I don't know exactly how old she's supposed to be, but I'm guessing like either around 19 or early 20s. Mm. She's the heiress to a, a family fortune, but ended up uh, learning how to fight and learning how to use a bow and arrow. She, be yeah. she was bequeathed with the mantle of Hawkeye by Captain America himself mm. during the period of time uh, in the wake of Avengers Disassembled when Clint Barton was thought to be dead. So if that sounds a little convoluted to you, comics, everybody. Yeah. <laughs> well, okay. The way that I see it is the simplified version is uh, for the purposes of the book. Um, if we're going to fill out Clint Barton's world and give him supporting characters, what better way than to give him someone who's essentially a protege or a sidekick? Yeah. You know, and that's that's kind of the role that she was uh, designed to fill. Um. Uh, 
So it's the two of them. It's it's yeah. Clint Barn and, and Kate Bishop. They are both Hawkeye. The story, the overall story, is about what do they do during their downtime? And one of the big ongoing plots is Clint ends up buying uh, an apartment complex filled with a bunch of interesting tenants. And this apartment complex, he becomes their protector. He becomes their protector because yeah. he's defending them from a, a Russian mob, essentially. Yeah. And it's a pretty simple premise. Oh, and there's also a dog. Yeah. A very lovable dog yeah. in the story. He becomes another supporting cast member. Pizza dog. Yeah. There was an entire issue devoted to this. <coughs> uh, the thing that I felt that I wanted to mention about this was... Uh, uh, okay, so I'm just going to go into it because uh, I, I do want to go back to the criteria and try to mm -hmm. you know figure out or try to explain um, according to those criteria how we decided on this being a great book. But right. there are certain things that I needed to mention. Um, so the the for me, I think the great thing about Hawkeye was that this was a character who had been along around in the Marvel universe for a really long time, and I feel like they've constantly flirted with the idea of giving him, you know, his own ongoing series. But it's, like a lot of characters in the Marvel Universe, um, they don't, those things don't always take. Uh, at most, you maybe get, like, you know, a decent run before the character maybe gets like canceled. like 10 or 12 issues. Yeah, something like that. And even then, it's not something that anyone ever really recognizes. They're pretty forgettable stories. Yeah, they're pretty forgettable. And so, for Matt Fraction to take Hawkeye, this character who's been a part of the Marvel Universe for such a long time, um, and to give him his own story, his own ongoing series outside of the Avengers books, that's that's a pretty hard thing to do. I mean, a lot of people have tried to tackle it, and it's uh, I, I think it's fair to say that no one's really been able to make it stick. Yeah. Um, but the things that I wanted to mention about what made his take on Hawkeye so fresh and just... So, um, I don't know what the word is, but, like, noticeable, I guess, is that he doesn't, I don't feel like Matt Fraction does a lot of the things that people do, or writers do, when they try to do a comic for a solo character. Mm -hmm. So, <clears throat> for example, um, I, I feel like for Hawkeye... They simplified him a lot. Uh, I feel like whenever another writer takes on a, an individual character to try to give them their own book, they actually spend more time trying to do world building around the character. And, you know, they introduce a bunch of new villains, and they, like, really, uh, you know, maybe even give him a new power, or, you know, maybe he gets a suit of armor or something. <laughs> you know, like, all this ridiculous stuff to really just kind of build out his world. And... I think Fraction just kind of simplified it by just basing it on characters. Like you said, he gave he gave him a supporting cast, and you know it wasn't anything that was overly ridiculous. It was a girl that idolized him and wanted to someday be like him, and a dog, and you know crazy crazy neighbors that lived yeah. in the apartment building. Um, in addition to that, I also felt like he. He took the formula for writing a, a comic book character and, like, he simplified it, you know? It it, it wasn't about, oh, uh, let's let's give him, you know, uh, an arch nemesis that he can face or whatever. Like, they didn't give him new villains. They just made his villains regular, everyday 
like threats that he could deal he with. He wasn't fighting Kang the Conqueror. Yeah, or, or he like wasn't that. fighting, you know, like his arch nemesis, which is a walking target or something <laughs> like that. You know, whatever the opposite <laughs> of an okay. arrow is. No, literally, I'm just talking about a target. <laughs> whatever the opposite of an arrow is or a bullseye. Like, a guy whose power is to make your aim go off or something like that. <laughs> something ridiculous, you know? Um, the other thing that I think that they did really well was by focusing so much on character and, uh, you know, just telling a good story and keeping it simple, they they didn't over try to oversell him. They didn't try to overemphasize him. They didn't spend all this energy trying to, like, let readers know hey, guys, look how cool he is. Yeah. You know, he's a, like, he's a killer, and he's got adamantanium arrows now, <laughs> and, like, he does skateboard tricks, <laughs> and guess what? He also just found out he has the ability to fire arrows from his eyes, you know, ridiculous <laughs> stuff like that. They they didn't oversell him. They, they just looked at him, and they were just like, look, he's just a regular dude who fights crime, and which goes to my, my next point, which is um, the other trap that a lot of writers a period fell into was whenever you take a street level superhero what do you do we gotta make him dark and grim and gritty yep. and clint barton isn't that what matt fraction did was he was just like i said earlier he took a regular guy and just gave him obstacles and conflicts in his life and he didn't make clint barton a brooder he didn't make him like suicidal or turn to drugs <laughs> like for you know just just to have he was himself yeah he was himself and I, I think the trend in comics for the longest time was to go in that other direction to make these people just destructive personalities. They've got a dark secret in their past. Yeah. Everything you knew was a lie. Yeah, and it's just ridiculous. I mean, that isn't to say that Clint Barton and Matt Fraction's run was perfect. Uh, like, he was still a womanizer, and he still, you know, had failings, but they, you know, like... They were the failings of a real three-dimensional person. person. Exactly, exactly. And I think the art really did a good job of conveying that, too. Especially, uh, well, I mean, all of the artists were really well well, uh, technically gifted and, and talented. Uh, David Ijaw, in particular, for establishing uh, the baseline look for the series. He draws in a very grounded style. Yeah. The thing that sets it apart is how design-oriented his mm. work is. And the way that he lays out his pages, you can tell that he thinks of comics... The, the You can tell that he thinks of the most minimal unit in a comic as a page. Mm. And he, he uses each page to convey the story. And when you look at it aesthetically, it, you know everything's really clean. Everything... Just looks the way it's supposed to. He's got a great sense of perspective. And it's got this realistic look where everybody, nobody stands around posing like they're, you know, yeah. on a Jim Lee poster yeah. or anything like that. People have real body language and real facial expressions. You can tell what they're feeling by looking in their eyes, just the way he draws them. Yeah. He draws in a very, like, human human way yeah you know i mean all, all of his characters aren't over exaggerated their forms are just regular people forms yeah and yeah. It, it goes really well with uh what you were saying earlier just in terms of how matt fraction and team kept it simple and 
the way that the art looks, everything's got this grounded uh, realism. Mm. It's, it's very grounded artwork. And the thing that sets the artwork apart, again, is the sense of design and the dynamic layouts and yeah. the creativity involved in telling stories. But the fact that the story, the overall story itself, is based on such a simple premise, just the premise that this is what Hawkeye does yeah. when he's not hanging out with the Avengers. At the time that this comic launched, he had just become the leader of the Secret Avengers, which was another good series that was written by Rick Remender. But this has nothing to do with what he does in the Avengers. This has nothing to do with yep. those crazy threats. What was going on at the time? Stuff like yep. uh, Avengers versus X Men or, or yeah. things like that. You know, yeah. this was seriously just about Hawkeye in his private life yeah. and what he has to do. In it's order a to deconstructed get on with it. Hawkeye comic. Yeah, you know, like it's it, again, like it's not about him fighting. You know, his antithesis or you know developing new powers or whatever. It's just really the a real take on what a real person would be doing if he was Hawkeye, which is kind of the most human of the superheroes in the sense that he's just a dude with arrows and he doesn't, you know, he's on a team with gods, mm -hmm. uh, a, you know, a human machine, uh, a super soldier, and he's just a dude with an arrow. So I, I do think that I don't know if it's, like, a purposeful commentary on Hawkeye or if it's something that they intentionally did, but it it's a comic, it's a story that suits him, yeah. you know? Yeah. Yeah, as opposed to, like, constantly trying to put him on the level of guys like Spider-Man or Captain America. They just brought him down to Earth. Yeah. And I dig that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, if we continue uh, well, in terms of our criteria... I, uh, the next one that I wanted to talk about was its ability to withstand the test of time. So, mm -hmm. um, I think a lot of what we mentioned really does really does make it feel like it, it it's something that I could read many years down the road, if only because it's so grounded in reality. It's extremely well-crafted. Yeah. Technically speaking, this is an immaculate comic. You yeah. can... People who, who want to make comics should take these issues and study them. Yeah. The art is really, yeah. really good. Uh, regardless of who, who, who the artist is, I mean, Aja, Annie Wu, and, and the rest of the artists, all really great artists. Yeah. Um, so technically, it's just like way up there. Yeah. Uh, and I would also say the art itself is just innovative stuff. Yeah. Um, I don't know if we specifically... Uh, talked about originality yet, but just to kind of emphasize that point, yeah. uh, I want to say that some of these issues were really notable. Uh, there was one famous issue, I forget which number it was off the top of my head, but it was the pizza dog issue, yeah. which was a, a, an entire issue told from the point of view of Hawkeye's dog. Yeah. So the way that the story was illustrated, it was almost kind of like meandering panels and a lot of inset panels and a lot of smaller panels inside bigger panels just a really really design oriented work the, the dialogue well i guess when fraction was writing it he took the I, I he made he came up with this idea where you know dogs don't necessarily have the full vocabulary of a of a human but mm. they do understand some things that we say mm. so you'd see bits of dialogue that 
other characters are speaking, but because it's all told from the dog's point of view, he only recognizes certain bits of dialogue. Yeah, he only recognizes a couple of words here yeah. and there, like eat or yeah. food, pizza, yeah. arrow. Yeah. But, you know, you, you could still follow the story. It's a clever way to tell a story. Yeah, you could figure out what's yeah. going on just by, by paying attention. But if it's something that you're trying to read in, like, five minutes, it'd be pretty challenging. Yeah. It's a very innovative way of telling a story. There was also that issue, another issue, where... Uh, the story was told through American Sign Language. Yeah. That's something that I don't think we've seen before. Yeah. It's it's innovative stuff, and I think it's that innovation that allows it to just transcend time. I mean, granted, who knows how many years down the road, like, people may build on what he did here, but... It's hard to imagine a future where every other comic is a pizza dog comic. Yeah. Yeah. I, like, I think the way that you read it, it's all very grounded... Uh, the dialogue is grounded, and it, it's not anything that, you know, he doesn't say tubular or anything <laughs> like that. <laughs> so I do really feel like... He doesn't say shunka-dunka either. He, he doesn't, but, you know, I didn't write it, so... <laughs> <laughs> Kids, when I get a chance to write Superman, we're going to get to see Superman say shunka-dunka. <laughs> <laughs> Hope you um, got a trademark on that one. <laughs> um, yeah, but, so... I. Yeah, we we discussed loosely how the craft and the its ability to withstand the test of time are probably its strongest things. Yeah, um, and originality. And original originality, but when when we ranked it on our uh, on our spreadsheet, uh, you know, while we were assigning. Wait, scores, what are you talking about, dude? What spreadsheet? I oh. thought you don't you mean <laughs> that gigantic group of. Yeah. Scientists, philosophers, and poets that we locked in a room in a basement <laughs> yeah. for a year and forced them to read every single Marvel comic exactly. in order to scientifically decide <laughs> what our top 25 were. Oh, yes, the scientists. <laughs> <laughs> but um, when we ran it by our elite team of comics readers, uh, the we did score it differently, or, or the part of the reason that... We, it's not higher on our list would be we did score it sort of low on originality and uh, impact and it's a different kind of originality I think that we, we scored it low for I mean in terms of its craft again it's just really impressive craft and it's uh, really well done but ultimately I think at the end of the day it was still you know, just a Hawkeye story about him fighting mobsters. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that might have been one of the places where our two scores might have differed a bit because okay. I, I did give it. I do think I I gave it a higher mark for originality because it it's so different from yeah. everything else that just the fact that it's based on Hawkeye that didn't really deter me from admiring its originality and the overall message of the yeah, book is, yeah. is something that. Still stands out. That's I mean, good. It, yeah, I think it's it's uh, just a remarkable piece of storytelling. Yeah. Because it's so innovative. You know, yeah. there's things that I've seen. Yeah, and I can't yeah, deny that, that I haven't like, seen in the other comics. It, yeah. Like, just there are just pages upon pages that you can just look upon, and each page is just just something that you can learn from. Yeah. Like just from the design of it, definitely. Yeah, but you're right about uh, <coughs> the impact because. Being such a... Well, a number one, comic. it's a recent comic. More recent. Yeah. Or at least, you know what, on our list, it's one of the... Yeah, it's one of the more recent ones. Yeah, this this came out in 
the first issue came out in 2012, and I think out of everything on our list, this and Jonathan Hickman's Avengers slash New Avengers, those are the most recent comics on our list. So I, don't, I don't know if that's a spoiler, but... So far. Let's go <laughs> so far. Yeah. Um, so because of that, it's hard to really say that it left a big impact. Yeah. Uh, another thing that might have uh, docked at some points in terms of impact is I don't really know if anybody has ever come out and said you've been really influenced by yeah. this run of Hawkeye. Yeah. You don't really see that in the movies necessarily. I mean, and I think they did a good job with Hawkeye in the movies. Yeah. But it's not necessarily, uh, at least when the first Avengers movie came out. It's I not super vocalized. Like, yeah, it's I don't not Because this, this comic yeah. hadn't been out at the time, yeah. so when they were making that movie. Yeah. So I don't know if, if we could really say this comic it's not a fair assessment for it yeah you know uh, it's just just the fact that it's so new and even if there are other writers that um appreciate it mm -hmm. uh it, it's hard to like it's hard for me to draw a direct line of influence from yeah. the things that are coming out today and this now 10 20 years down the line like some kid that grew up with this and was like really influenced by either Fractions writing or David Hodges' art, we might see something really cool. Yeah. Like, but until then, we can't, there's, it's harder for us to prove that its impact is as significant as some of the other yeah. things on our list. And I think if, if anything, somebody, the counter argument to that might be for someone to say, well, Hawkeye was a very different type of Marvel comic. It, it's almost this, like I said earlier in the show, uh, it's almost like a creator-owned comic that features Marvel indie characters. Comic. Yeah, an indie comic. And I don't know if the wider comics general public uh, feels really this way. really aware about it, of it. Yeah. I don't, and, and the other thing I was going to say is I don't know if they, if, if they view things the way I view things, but there's a chance that people out there might look at something like the unbeatable Squirrel Girl and point to that and say, Hey, that's kind of like in a similar vein, or maybe it's a descendant of the Fraction Aja Hawkeye because it's it's different. Uh, you know, personally, I, I don't I don't know if I would really buy that. Um, There's more to it than that. I mean, that's a different conversation, though. I don't really want to deconstruct Squirrel Girl, Squirrel Girl right now, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, all right. So, do you have any more to say on uh, Hawkeye? Uh, I guess the, the last thing I would want to say about Hawkeye is just to encourage anyone who's out there listening, if you haven't read Hawkeye, check it out. And if it's you a, have read it, check it out again. Yeah, It's, it's a, a beautiful book. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a wonderful story that, that's about persistence. Mm -hmm. Persistence and, and perseverance. It's about these two characters... Clint Barn and Kate Bishop, and how they never give up. There's a lot of done in ones in the story, in, in the overall run, but there's also an overall overarching story as well. And something that you can pick up one random issue and appreciate and enjoy it. But if you read them all, it's going to be something special. So that's Hawkeye at number 18. Cool. Next up on our list, we got. Coming in at uh, number 17, we have Craven's Last Hunt. 
This is by J.M. DeMatteis and Mike Zeck. Yep. Do you have the year that it was written? Published, originally published in 1987. So this was a Spider-Man story arc, originally published as a crossover. So it was kind of groundbreaking, I think. It was one of the, it might have been the first, uh, one of the first, if not the first, notable storylines that was a crossover because it's a six-part story where two chapters apiece appeared in Web of Spider-Man, Spectacular Spider-Man, and Amazing Spider-Man, which were the three ongoing Spider-Man titles at the time. And this story, uh, it's got a really cool... Uh, pedigree with DiMatteis and Mike Zeck. Mm. They had worked together uh, in the past on Captain America together, and they developed uh, good rapport. And I think you see it when you when you read uh, the comic, the way that they're able to really vibe with each other. I mean, personally, I can't say I'm a really big Mike Zeck fan. He, he's the guy who drew uh, Secret Wars okay. back in the, the 80s, one of the, the first uh, big events in mainstream comics, but this comic uh, in particular, Craven's Last Hunt, it it looks really good, and I think his art here still holds up. There's a lot of artists that I read from the 80s um, that I liked when I was a kid, where I think it might not have necessarily aged too well. Mm. Uh, like, I'm thinking of guys like John Byrne or yeah. George Perez. Yeah. Uh, I mean, they're... <laughs> Like, the way they draw hair, I mean, that, it's pretty dated stuff. Yeah. But with uh, Mike Zeck on the Spider-Man comic, it's, yeah, I mean, sure, you could say that it looks like it was made in its time, but it doesn't look outmoded to the yeah. point of, I can't get over how outmoded it looks, you yeah. know? Yeah. I think it's also, you did mention earlier that this was a crossover that took place over three different Spider-Man mm -hmm. books, and I think... The thing that works in its favor is the fact that Mike Zeck was able to draw all six of those yeah. issues, yeah. which is, you know, most often whenever you get one of these cross, uh, you know, cross title crossovers, uh, you have different teams working on it. So there's a lot of inconsistency. It's hard to look at. It's, uh, yeah, this very easily could have yeah. been a straightforward six issue arc. Yeah, in Amazing Spider-Man. It's basically an an original graphic novel within the um, regular comics that was coming out at the time. Yeah. You know, so it's it's, it's a gift. <laughs> yeah. One interesting factoid uh, I just remembered, even though we everybody knows this story as Craven's Last Hunt, the original title was Fearful Symmetry. Mm. J.M. DeMatteis originally titled it that, yeah. but I think the, uh, the editor at some point, I don't know if it was for the collected, the first collected edition. Yeah. But I guess the editor thought that Craven's Last Hunt would make a catchier sounding title. You know, I can't really deny that. They're both they're both good titles. Yeah. Uh, I like them both, but Craven's Last I guess Hunt. I'm just used to calling it Craven's Last Hunt. Yeah. Well, that's the thing I was going to say is Craven's Last Hunt is the one that sticks. Yeah. Like uh even even for me uh when when you call it fearful symmetry unless people are really in the know, they don't I, there's no automatic association at least not for me. Yeah. Like whenever Someone talks to me and brings up, oh, one of the greatest Spider-Man stories of all time, Craven's Last Hunt. 
I get that. Yeah. But fearful symmetry. Fearful symmetry. I really have to think about. That. <laughs> <laughs> um, so tell me, what do you think of the craft of the book in terms of the writing and uh, yeah, James Demetrius? I think the craft of it is is excellent. Uh, like I said earlier, both artist and writer are in sync. You can tell that yeah. they're really comfortable working with each other. And I think uh, JMDM's writing, where he's able to, he's he's very poetic. Yeah. Like he's got a poetic soul, man. I don't, yeah. I don't know, I don't necessarily know uh, all of his influences, but yeah. in the introduction to the hardcover, he mentioned uh, Dostoevsky, and that's uh, I guess that was something that he had thought of because he realized that Craven was Russian. <laughs> right. Right. And he was a big fan of that sort of... Uh, epic storytelling. Yeah, that, that yeah. epic storytelling, the deep uh, characters. Yeah. And and he was able to really make that come out within this comic. Yeah. Where the, the prose and the and the dialogue and the, mm. the narrative captions... Yeah. He's, he writes in a sort of... I don't want to say flowery, because that might sound a little dismissive, but I would just say... I guess I would say... Uh, Poetic, yeah, yeah, poetic. He he writes prose that's intricate and emotional, and not only emotional but emotive. Where he's the way I'm able to read it is it's stuff that really strikes me as yeah. a reader. You know, it, like it's the premise. Maybe we should talk about the premise of the story. Yeah, like yeah. For yeah, those who, who uh, are unfamiliar with it, the premise of the story is Craven, who is this Silver Age Spider-Man villain. He's a kind of a weird villain uh, when you think about it. He yeah. looks like a like a Tarzan kind of guy, right? His his entire shtick is that he's a big game hunter. Yeah. Who who's just decided that Spider-Man is the most the, dangerous the most game. dangerous game of all. Yeah. You know, like he's killed lions and rhinos and all sorts of animals, and now he wants a challenge. And so for the past like X amount of years or decades or whatever mm-hmm. since his uh, conception. It's just been about him trying to hunt down Spider-Man and claim the mantle as the man that, you know, yeah. captured Spider-Man or, you know... Or killed him. Killed him, even. Yeah. Yeah. So the premise of Craven's Last Hunt is that Craven manages to tranquilize Peter Parker, Spider-Man. Well, uh... Right. Uh, spoilers, people. <laughs> oh, yeah, I mean, that happens in the first couple pages. So okay, okay, okay. It's, it's not too big of a deal. <laughs> He, he basically tra- traps Spider-Man, buries yeah. him alive, and while Spider-Man's buried alive, Kraven puts on Spider-Man's costume. And, oh yeah, another cool thing, this is one of the stories where Spider-Man's in his black suit. Yeah. So, it's a black suit Spider-Man. It's, it's not the Venom symbiote, it's just his black costume. Yeah. But Kraven ends up making a replica of the black suit, Spider-Man's costume, and he starts parading around as Spider-Man, basically yeah. showing... That he can be a better Spider-Man than Peter Parker ever was. Exactly. Uh, in his deranged mind, uh, like I think it's also worth mentioning that at uh, for the purposes of this story, at this point, Craven uh, goes from being just this cartoonish, uh, you know, safari hunting like campy supervillain to mm-hmm. a truly deranged madman. So he's his obsession with Spider-Man has like literally just taken control of his mind, and he's just off the rails basically and in hunting down spider-man he he doesn't want to just kill him 
his his entire he wants drive. To replace him. Yeah, he he wants to show that he can be a better Spider Man than Spider than even Spider Man. He is the superior Spider Man. There we go. There you we like go. how I did that? I do. I do. <laughs> <laughs> uh, don't read superior Spider Man kids. <laughs> <laughs> um. So the thing I wanted to say about the craft of the book is um. And it ties into my view of the originality of it, but uh, mm -hmm. I'll, I'll go more into that when we're discussing the originality. But uh, the thing that really interests me about this book is that for long chunks of the book, Spider-Man, or Peter Parker rather, is actually missing. Mm -hmm. um, in, in the beginning of the story, actually, they don't we don't find out that he's tranquilized. We assume that he's been killed because he just kind of gets shot with a rifle. Well, he gets shot with a dart. Really? Yeah. No, like didn't they just show the muzzle flash and then that's just kind of where it ends and then you see the let me let me let me yeah check, and then man. you see the tombstone. So the presumption is that he killed him. You don't find out till later that he's actually uh very uh, that he's actually still alive and um uh, just buried. Is that true? Yeah, I believe so. I, yeah, like oh yeah yeah yeah. I'm all you see right now. I'm flipping through it right now. Yeah. All you see is the burial and the muzzle flyer. So, for us, the viewer, if you just read that first issue, you just presume but, that he's dead. Oh, right? I think it was because of this scene here earlier in, in the oh. fight. He gets shot with the tranquilizer. And yeah. That really messes him up. Yeah. So that he's vulnerable to Spider yeah. to Craven, And Craven shoots a net over yeah. him. And, and then he takes that opportunity to blast him. Yeah. Or at least that's how it, it's implied that he killed him. Yeah. Yeah. So... The thing about this is, it's not really, for so for large portions of it, it's not really a Spider-Man story, and it's more of an inner inner narrative of Kraven. Yeah. And I think that's, to your point about uh, Dematteis' ability to write, like, really poetic prose, I'm really, I, I'm, the thing that really strikes me about the book is his ability to take this kind of one-dimensional what was he, Silver Age character? Yeah. This one-dimensional Silver Age character, and to infuse him with actual motivations, actual thoughts. Pathos. Pathos, exactly. Even though he's deranged, like, he's more than just, I'm a big game hunter! He's not Yosemite Sam anymore, you know? <laughs> he's He's got a reason for wanting to kill Spider-Man. He's he's driven by something. Mm -hmm. And um, the voice that Jean-Marc DiMatteis gives him is, it's powerful, like this is, this is a really dramatic book, and I, some people might look at that and they might not necessarily enjoy the drama, but I do. Like I, I'm, I'm moved by the yeah. power of it all. It's, you it's know? really stirring stuff. It is. Like it I is. was saying earlier, his writing is emotive. Exactly. And exactly. I, I think even the artwork helps convey that. Yeah. The way that that uh, yeah. Mike Zeck draws Craven, where he actually does look deranged. Yeah. He looks, he looks obsessed. He yeah. looks messed up. Yeah. He just looks like he's got something heavy on yeah. his mind, and he has to do this thing because it's the only thing that will sustain him. Yeah, and it's and again, he gives him other motivations too. I think there was stuff in there about um, Craven's parents, like a, a lot of a lot of his formative. Uh, a lot of the things that were formative to his personality and to where he is now and why he has to like 
prove to himself that he's better than Spider-Man. A lot of that has to do with relationships that were cultivated with between him and his parents, mm -hmm. and like just his inadequacies. Like he really uh, essentially gives Craven a soul, you yeah. know, going from you know just some shoot 'em up safari guy. Yeah, he. Would you go so far as to say that he makes Craven a sympathetic character, or did would you just say he merely humanizes him? Oof, that is a tough question. I don't think it's hard to sympathize with him because you know he's still a criminal and he's still kind of a monster at the end of the day. Right. But uh, I I think I'd accept that he humanizes him. Uh, like I, there there's a place for stories where you know your villains are your villains. You know, good is good, bad is bad. Yeah. But. He's clearly bad. Yeah, like, Craven's still clearly bad, but it's... I think there's something about all monsters that we're all fascinated by, which is part of the reason why we still study... Why there's so much fiction around serial killers and, yeah. like, uh, you know, just murderers and things like that. Like, we, we all want to understand how a person can get so far off the track. Yeah. How does, how does a person become a monster? Like, uh, I wake up in the morning and I, you know see my neighbors, I see your average man on the street, I don't necessarily expect anything of them, but I, I, I expect them to have the same life and the same life experiences that I have, and at what point does your average Joe become, you know, Right, you don't, ex you don't expect your neighbor to, to bury you alive and then try exactly. and replace you. Exactly, exactly. Um, so the next thing that I wanted to discuss was the originality of this comic, what do you have any thoughts on on that? Yeah, I'd say that this comic, based on what we've described so far, it's definitely very different, especially when you compare it to yeah. the comics of its era. Yeah, I don't think I can't think of anything around this time period. What was it, uh, 1987 or so, mm. that was approximate to Craven's Last Hunt? Yeah, uh, especially when we're, we're talking strictly about superhero comics. Yeah, uh, I think. If, if we kind of broaden that and just include comics in general, uh, creator-owned comics and things like that, I do think that um, you really see some of DiMatteis's, uh favorite themes in play yeah. in the story as well, which is something that I definitely appreciate. I'm a, I'm a big fan mm -hmm. of his work in general, and one of his themes is, one of the things that typically underlies all of his work that I can think of is a sense of hope and optimism. Yeah. And we've kind of portrayed so far uh, in our description of Craven's Last Hunt, you know, this is a story that's about a monster. It's a story about a villain who finally gets one up on the hero of yeah. the piece. But at the end of the day, this isn't as, as, the, as dark or dreary and, and full of despair as that premise sounds. Yeah. This is ultimately a story about hope and survival redemption to an extent yeah <laughs> <laughs> but just thinking about about what peter parker experiences in the story he's basically kept alive by his love for mary jane mm. they had just gotten married right before sometime right before this story came out yeah and dimatteis has a few scenes here and there of mj at home being concerned for, you know, where's where's her husband? You know, yeah. wondering where Peter is, and and you've got Peter uh, buried in the coffin under the dirt, 
clawing his way to the light, trying to survive for her, trying to find yeah. her, get his way back to her. And and I don't know if that's necessarily a message that we've never seen before, but I think seeing that in a, a Spider-Man, Spider-Man comic, comic, yeah, yeah, this is that's different. That's that's really that's the different. Thing that makes it original. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I I fully agree with that. Up to this point. We're still dealing with a lot of Spider-Man stories. A lot of it is melodrama. Yeah. And and it's melodrama that doesn't necessarily ring as true as mm. the emotions in this yeah. specific story. Yeah, up to this point, the biggest thing about Spider-Man is that, oh, he's got human issues like we do. It's like, oh, he, because of him wanting to be a superhero, he doesn't get to go out with the girl. Or he has to choose between two girls or, you know. Yeah, and it's interesting because his most formative moments in his life they're all pretty serious moments i mean uncle ben's death gwen stacy's death yeah. uh, her father's death yeah and this moment yeah. in craven's last hunt you know those are all some of his most formative events. experiences or, yeah. yeah if if we were if we were writing out uh and don't forget he was molested <laughs> you went there yeah, i did <laughs> Oh man, I feel like we'll have to have a whole nother episode. To... <laughs> it happened, boys and girls. It happened. This was the story that was in comics. He was molested. I'm afraid to say anything because it sounds like you're a little too gleeful about sharing that information. <laughs> okay, well, we'll, we'll um, it's a bit of a detraction, but go ahead. <laughs> I already forgot what I was talking about, Albert. <laughs> You were saying something about originality. You were talking about how all of his biggest moments were focused around right. pretty serious moments. Right. You know? That's, yeah. And I think what I was where I was going with that was the idea that other than those major milestone events in his life, a lot of his other uh, experiences in comics uh, tended to be pretty much stuff that the average Joe would experience. He was, he's regarded as yeah. the everyman superhero, yeah. someone who has to weigh the responsibility that comes with his power, and on some level, that's a universal theme. You know, everybody yeah. understands what that means, what that looks like in their own life. You know, yeah. you might not necessarily have superpowers, but... We know what it's like to, you know, like, pine for a girl, uh, or we know what it's like to have troubles at work. Yeah. You know, or to have troubles at school. You know what it's like to have responsibility, and yeah. you know what it means when you have to face a situation where doing the right thing isn't necessarily the easy thing. Mm. Yeah. And, you know, universal experiences like that um, are, are pretty commonplace for, for Spider-Man. Yeah. In addition to him punching bad guys in the face or, yeah. or showing up in cartoons and, I don't know, maybe throwing... Hostess Twinkies at crooks <laughs> right. in order to stop them. <laughs> yeah, with the power of sugary snack treats. Yeah, yeah. But the the drama in Craven's Last Hunt, do you think it feels different? It feels different. It's a whole nother level. Yeah. Like, I still don't think I've read a Spider-Man story that hits yeah. the way this does. I, I would happen to agree. It's, I don't know. We've Okay, so this is a separate discussion that we've had outside of this podcast. But do you think it would count as a literary comic? Yeah, I think so. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Because I think the, that's fair. The writing is literary. It's, yeah. It's not your typical 
I mean, I, I don't want to sound dismissive of superhero comics in general, but I think we understand that... Then there are superhero comics and then there's yeah literature yeah. sometimes, right? Right. And maybe, maybe I'm sure for snobs out there, they'll never want to pick up this comic because it's got Spider-Man in it. Yeah. But that's their last man. Yeah. Like, if you can't see past, um, you know, the, the Spider-Man that you know, is on billboards or in movie posters or, you know, that kids' books, coloring books, toys or whatever. Cereal boxes. Cereal boxes. If you can't look past that Spider-Man or if you can't get over your own, like, biases, then you're really missing out on something because Spider-Man does have a very long history and, you know, just like any of these other superhero comics, they all have very long histories and um, there are certain bits and pieces that are truly gems. Yeah, know, truly this is gems. this is the high point. Yeah. Uh, I was going to say the thing that makes it original for me was you, you, you're going to have to confirm some of the timetable stuff for me, but like uh, a lot of the comics that were coming out in this era, like wasn't like DK, DKR around mm -hmm. this era. So we were kind of in, a, in an era where I feel like there was a lot of focus on deconstructing, you know, what makes Batman Batman, yeah. or stuff like that. I don't really necessarily feel like this was a deconstruction of Spider-Man. It was just a really powerful yeah. story, you know? Yeah. That it was just Spider-Man involved in this drama with a madman. Yeah, I yeah. would agree with that. Yeah, so I, I thought that was a pretty original uh, thing, that it wasn't a deconstruction of what makes Spider-Man Spider-Man. I mean, although I, 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 I can see it if you someone wanted to make that argument that there are portions of it that are... Uh, it's it's not a deconstruction of the character the way that the Dark Knight Returns deconstructed Batman. Yeah, it, it's not. It's it's a uh, Craven's Last Hunt is a dark it, story, but yeah. I wouldn't say it's grim yeah. necessarily. But there's a lot of heavy stuff that happens in this yeah. comic, and yeah. and again, the word I use to that I associate with it is pathos. It's, yeah. There's a heavy amount of emotional content. Yeah, contained within these pages. Absolutely. Um, and again, the other thing that I wanted to mention when I was discussing in, uh, the craft of it was um, the the other thing that was original about it was it might not have been a deconstruction of Peter Parker as Spider Man, but it it was for a large portion of it a Craven story. Mm -hmm. It's it's more of a story of Craven, yeah, and it's kind of a deconstruction of him, which I thought was yeah a pretty big. Um, Point of originality. Yeah, it's clever. Yeah, it is. It who, is. who would have ever thought yeah. to do a story about Craven like that? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's, you know, there are all of the superheroes that um, exist in the various Marvel uh, comic book universes. They, they, you know, there are some villains that we all kind of automatically assume, or, or not assume, but... Uh, associate with greatness so mm -hmm. we like we all know who the joker is um we all know who lex luther is we know like that there those are characters that are uh capable of having uh pretty profound stories told about told about them there's there's more to it than that for them to take some for john mark dimatteis to take someone like craven like it, it's infusing just so much more uh content or context to yeah. to this B maybe even C list character yeah yeah um, he he made Craven famous yeah yeah and it was in Craven's death 
Yeah. Oddly enough, that we will never forget him. Yeah, that was a spoiler. <laughs> oh, oh, shoot, my bad. <laughs> it's okay. This is a thirty-year-old comic. It it is called his last time. <laughs> <laughs> It would have been funny if he had just been like, well, I'm going to retire now, guys. And he goes out the... <laughs> My bad, dude. Um, so the next uh, criteria that I wanted to discuss is its impact. Mm-hmm. And this is... Uh, it, it's hard to deny that this book didn't have a great and lasting impact to the point that even now, to this day, like modern writers still kind of go back and mine it for stories every once in a while we'll get another you know craven based story yeah. or something you know it's it's definitely considered a milestone in uh peter parker's very long history yeah i think anybody who cares anything at all about spider-man is aware of craven's last hunt and understands that this is a milestone in the entire characters in the character's entire history yeah this is one of his greatest stories. Yeah. If you were to search for an evergreen Spider-Man story, <laughs> evergreen, <laughs> <laughs> this is probably going to be one of the top choices. And the overall impact it had in Spider-Man, I would say, anyone who, who's gone on to write Spider-Man since, they've read this story, yeah. no doubt. Yeah, and for most comic fans, if you if you bring it up, like, I don't know if it's considered, or if, like, it's a story that a lot of people necessarily put at their top ten, or, you know, like, comics comics have a long history. There's there's a whole bunch of stuff mm-hmm. that comes out, so, like, everyone's list is different, but ours is the definitive list, by the way. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but if you ask most people who are fans of comics, they know this story, mm-hmm. you know? So it's it's hard to deny that it had an impact and you know moving on to our next criteria it's hard to deny that it doesn't withstand the test of time yeah yeah this really withstands the test of time totally it's already what 30 years old and it still holds up yeah still holds up it's worth reading it and we're gonna be rereading it in the future yeah i mean the the thing that makes it withstand the test of time for me is that just so much of the emotion in it is just Emotions don't get old. People hate or, like, you know, people love, people envy. Those are universally understood. Yeah. And, you know, it's not like this is about Spider-Man being on MySpace or something like that. <laughs> I mean, this is, it's just universally understood themes and just something that you can carry on with you. And the language isn't dated at all. It's, it's yeah, like, it's a it's a great piece of work and it's something that, Every couple of years, I go back to just just because, you know, I, I want to see or, like, re-immerse myself in the experience. You want to read a good Spider-Man. Yeah, totally, totally. Here, here's another question. Um, going back to the superior Spider-Man, yeah. do, do you think Dan Slott read this comic? And what, his, what do you think? Because uh, just for, for our listeners, in case uh, you aren't aware, a couple of years ago... Dan Slott, the current writer for Spider-Man, he did a story where Dr. Octopus transferred his consciousness into Peter Parker's body and basically decided that he would be an even better Spider-Man than Peter ever was, hence the title The Superior Spider-Man. And that was his Spider-Man status quo for a couple of years. 
And when I learned that, when that first happened and I learned about that premise, I was like, wait a minute, didn't JMDM already do that story? How is Slot going to try and do his own version of that? Yeah, that's really interesting. I'd never, I didn't make that automatic association between those two, but now that you mention it, that's actually a really interesting point. Essentially, it just feels like he wanted to take that theme and he wanted to run with it because, again, Craven's Last Hunt all happens within the span of six issues. And if you really look at the timetable of the comic, um, I think like a week, maybe two weeks passed mm-hmm. in, in, in comic time, yeah. right? So for Dan Slott to do that story where he's like, Dr. Octopus is going to find a way to quote unquote kill Spider Man, <laughs> but he's going to use his mind to take over Spider-Man's body, and in Spider-Man's body, he's gonna... He feels that the greatest disrespect to Spider-Man is for him to become an even greater hero than Spider-Man ever was. And to me, that just feels like it's taking the idea of Kraven's Last Hunt, the core concept of it all, and bringing it back to just kind of the... the standard kind of super... Spider-Man superheroics that we're accustomed to seeing, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, so it doesn't necessarily elevate the the subject matter, and it just, if anything, it just kind of brings it down to the the same hijinks that Spider-Man usually faces, you know? It's like, cheapens it. It cheapens it, you know? All of a sudden, uh, it takes this really dramatic story about uh, Kraven uh, wanting to prove himself in the ultimate way to Spider-Man and to himself, and it... it infuses, you know, kind of the silly concept of, oh, I'm not going to kill him, or, like, I'm going to kill him, but it's not really a real death, I'm just taking over his body, and it's just, it's, it's like ridiculous. Freaky Friday or something. Yeah, and it's it's not, it's hard to tell a story where you have that level of, where you have, like, an element like mind control, or, you know, clones, or whatever, and to try to make it seem serious, you know, it's just yeah. silly. Yeah. It's silly is what it is. So do you think, do you think that Dan Slott was influenced by this work? Was that was Superior Spider-Man a di- direct result of the impact of Craven's Last Hunt? That's tough to say. I can't. I can't really answer that. It's. I wonder if anyone's ever asked Dan Slott that question. Exactly before. right. I mean, like, like I said, when until you brought it up just now, I never made that association, but. You mentioning it, it, it does really feel like, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> They're just doing that again, but worse. <laughs> I mean, what do you think? Uh, I think he had, I mean, he obviously had to be aware of the story. Yeah, it's hard to I imagine that he yeah, wasn't. I don't know if he was trying to do his own misguided homage to the story, but I, all I can really say is I wish he didn't do that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. there's really nothing more to say. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, like, now we have to live in a world where there was a period of time where Dr. Octopus used mind control to take over Spider-Man's body, and uh, he was Spider-Man, and there was a period where Spider-Man was a jerk, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. That, yeah, I, I can't, I can't sell myself on the idea, but hey. <laughs> So, ladies and gentlemen, read Spider-Man, Craven's Last Hunt, not Dan Slott's Superior Spider-Man. <laughs> That's true. That is the <laughs> real Superior Spider-Man right there.
So we're closing it off today with what numbers were those on our list? That was uh, numbers 18 and 17. 18 and 17. All right. Thank you, everybody, for listening. This is Between the Gutters. I'm Drew Tan. I'm Albert Lamb. Shunkadunka. Shunkadunka. <laughs>